to The Freak Show, fellow freaks. I'm Matthew Brockmeyer, the Humboldt lycanthrope. I'm Sarah Hartman. And this is... Murder Coaster. This one's a doozy, so buckle up. The villain of today's case was definitely a freak. Unfortunately, not in a good way at all. But if it was the 1930s, I could see him as a full-on geek in a pit with his filthy dreadlocks, ripping off the heads of snakes and chickens with his filed-down teeth. He really would have excelled at living in a hole of filth, killing small animals and rubbing their blood on his face. Because, as we'll see, this was a lifestyle he actually engaged in and enjoyed. He is the filthiest of the filthy, the stinkiest of the stinky, three-time high school freshman, the Charles Manson of Clemens, North Carolina, the original turd boy himself, murdering, cannibal, wannabe demon, wannabe jihadist, and wannabe violent sex cult leader, the douchebag demon of the suburbs, the devil with the leastest, John Lawson, a.k.a. Azuzu Algarai. This tale is the perfect storm of deteriorating mental health gone dangerously unchecked, unhinged heroin, methamphetamine, and alcohol abuse, gross police negligence, and failed social services, parental incompetence, juvenile delinquency, pop culture, satanic panic gone sideways and upside down, stupidity and naivete on multiple levels from all involved, and unemployed youth with no direction and no purpose, all coming together to create a cyclone that caused three known murders and countless shattered lives. And most of this story takes place in this guy's mother's suburban house. Yes, this 30-year-old wannabe sex cult leader lived with his mommy, who paid all the bills in a literal house of horror that was so disgusting, so filthy and mold-covered, that when the police finally raided it, after five years of complaints and tales of murder and debauchery, they had to have the fire department come in with hazmat suits and smash the windows out for ventilation. It was then officially declared unfit for human habitation and later bulldozed to the ground. Now, I often wonder about the psychological state of some of these people, how their thinking works. And luckily, my wonderful co-host, Sarah Hartman here, besides being a tattoo artist extraordinaire, has a master's degree in psychology and is a certified and practicing psychotherapist. So throughout today's show, I'm going to be asking her basic questions about the mental going-ons in this case. I guess I'll start right here with this one. Sarah, this is how Pazuzu's good friend David Adams describes a typical day at Pazuzu's house. We just chilled around and whatnot, maybe do a little heroin, just a shit ton of drinking, then cut ourselves, cut each other, you know, maybe drink the blood of a bird. Just 
all around having a good time. So from a psychological standpoint, is this a healthy lifestyle and what you'd expect from a typical youth? I guess a little teenage rebellion is a healthy part of human development, sure. But self-harm, heroin use, and you said drinking bird blood. What parent wouldn't be concerned by that? Oh, wait. I think we find out the answer to that one here soon. It's worth mentioning that psychologist Eric Erickson conceived of eight stages of human development characterized by the psychosocial conflicts we experience as we age, building our identity, often through acts of rebellion, is the major focus of the teenage years. And learning skills related to intimacy and successful relationships with others is the focus of young adulthood. But a typical youth, as you said, a typical youth is probably figuring out who they are by dyeing their hair, quitting a childhood sport, or maybe staying out past curfew. Not hard drug abuse, animal sacrifices, but that is quite an identity our Pazuzu has put together for himself. Not that he's got anything to rebel against, except the religious conservative nature of his own town. His mom has set absolutely zero, and I mean zero, limits for him. If he wants to rebel against anything, maybe he figures he's got to take it to the extreme and just go ahead and piss off the whole town. Is this the ultimate cautionary tale against permissive parenting? Maybe. Maybe. I don't know. One could see it as the ultimate tale of unconditional love. A story of the most forgiving and loving mother in the world. For as we'll see, she loved her son to the end and always stood by him in often bizarre and disturbing ways. And she still loves him deeply to this day, through all the little stages where he acted up, like, oh, wearing plastic fangs and a cape, to playing black metal at obscene volume 24 hours a day, to torture, animal sacrifice, and cold-blooded murder. Okay, so it's said Pazuzu would encourage his friends to defecate right on the living room floor of his mother's house and let the dogs eat it. What's going on there from a psychological standpoint, in your opinion? Well, there isn't exactly a bevy of psychological precedent to help us answer that. It's possible Pazuzu really does think that filth adds to his magic, but I doubt his friends are buying that. And in that vein, one more quick question. In your studies, have you ever come across anything to actually affirm that being filthy does in fact give one magical powers, as Pazuzu believed? A description of a patient's <laughs> personal hygiene is always part of a typical mental status exam, but that's not why. We're not screening patients for magical powers, but instead, we're assessing function by summarizing appearance, behavior, motor activity, speech, 
mood, affect, thought process, thought content, perceptual disturbances, cognition, insight, and judgment, all to paint a picture of that patient's mental state at the time of the examination. Observation of patient hygiene is part of the appearance section of a mental status exam. Poor hygiene and poor grooming are generally a red flag, indicating that in the context of their mental illness, the patient is not functioning optimally. Psychological professionals see poor hygiene as a side that their patients may be severely depressed, have a neurocognitive disorder, or may be experiencing a negative symptom of a psychotic disorder, such as schizophrenia. In other words, foul odor or disheveled appearance is definitely cause for concern. This guy has got a lot of causes for concern, let me tell you. That he does. <laughs> so, okay, uh, with that out of the way, let's get into our first known victim of Pazuzu, a guy named Joshua Wetzler. Now, I've known a million guys like Josh over the years. He was a sweet hippie dude. He had a beard, wore a hemp necklace with crystals wrapped in it, and tie-dyed t-shirts with Grateful Dead logos. He lived in his van, touring around, always playing his favorite band, Widespread Panic. Basically, Josh was, you know, the kind of guy you might see selling grilled cheeses on the parking lot of a fish show. Josh meets his girlfriend, Stacy Carter, in 1999 at a music festival in Olympia, Washington. They both shared a passion for horses and living off the land and together dreamed of starting a horse rehabilitation farm. Now, I don't know if it was just too rainy for them there in Olympia or the terrain or prices weren't right for a horse farm, but the two decided to move back to Josh's home state of North Carolina specifically the Winston-Salem area. You know, in my opinion, bad idea in a lot of ways because Olympia, it's this really cool, liberal, hippie town. And these guys, they're moving into the Bible Belt of straight-laced evangelical Christians and, frankly, like Southern rednecks. I'm not trying to put any of that down. It's all good. But what I'm saying is, if you're a freaky, you're weird, you like smoking weed and eating mushrooms and listening to the Grateful Dead, maybe stay in a community that's not going to judge you for those things. I don't know. I just feel really bad for these young lovers and their dreams of living off the land. Okay, that's fair. But they did find land there to start their horse farm. Their dream, it was happening. Josh had work on nearby farms as a farrier, trimming and balancing horses' hooves and chewing them, while she explored therapeutic horseback riding. And the couple had a baby, a son. But this was the late 2000s, and they found themselves in the same bad loan scams and shady banking practices that caused the economic crisis and Great Recession. And in 2008, they lost their farm. Now, with a child, 
losing their land and seeing their dream of horse rehabilitation center go up in smoke, that was especially hard. They had been so close to making their dream a reality. Josh gets one of his hippie friends from the West Coast to mail him some magic mushrooms. Probably to make a few bucks, but who knows? Maybe he was going to go on some kind of vision quest to decide the future. Regardless of why, authorities discover them and crack down hard. He's busted. And guess what? He's not in Olympia, Washington anymore. He's in small town South Carolina, where hippies and psychedelic mushrooms are big news. And Josh ends up on the front page of every local newspaper. And his son is taken away by the state. He's convicted of a felony. The local horse community wants nothing to do with him. The hoof cleaning customers, they abandon him. Every job he applies for turns him down because of that felony drug conviction that's now on his record. Basically, he's fucked over a bag of psilocybin mushrooms. It's ridiculous. And soon, he would disappear off the face of the earth, only to have his skeletal remains found in a shallow grave beside an empty swimming pool covered in graffiti over five years later. Josh and Stacy are broken up by this point, but they share a child and they're still close friends. Josh is really being forced into a kind of shady life of drug dealing and desperation. This sweet, bright, fun-loving horse lover who wanted nothing more than to raise a family on a farm and be a hard-working member of society has now been crushed by the system for a bag of mushrooms and branded as a criminal, forced into the shadows where people like Pazuzu Algorad wait like a spider watching a fly buzz closer. And some of you out there probably thought I was being an asshole for saying he should have stayed in Olympia. Be careful out there, fellow freaks. It can be a cold, mean world. No kidding. So at first, it wasn't that big of a deal for Stacy when Josh stopped calling and he stopped visiting. He'd done this before when he had things going on and needed to avoid law enforcement. But soon, those days turned into weeks, those weeks turned into months. And when Josh failed to call or show up for both his mother's birthday and then Christmas, it was then Stacy knew something was terribly wrong. So, in February of 2010, Stacy finally goes to the police and reports Josh missing. What the police tell her is utterly unnerving. They tell her they found his car abandoned in a parking lot with the keys in the ignition seven months ago. Cue creepy music. I do hope we have some creepy music that we can play here. (laughs) (laughs) What the police don't tell Stacy is that they've gotten an anonymous call around this same time saying that some devil worshiper named Pazuzu, had shot this guy named Josh in his basement and buried him in his backyard, which they, of course, did nothing about. Nothing. 
Oh, come on. We got mushroom eating hippies to bust out here. Cops are probably busy with some kids on skateboards, smoking weed behind the 7-Eleven. Got to go round them up and harass them. You know, the cops are busy. They don't have time for lowly murder accusations. Very important stuff going on. Very important stuff. But let's keep in mind the date, September 24th, 2009. The first time the police are told about a guy named Pazuzu murdering people. Okay, so we know that you all out there are clamoring for it. I can hear all you fellow freaks screaming, who the fuck is this Pazuzu character? So let's get into it. Pazuzu Algarad was born John Alexander Lawson, August 12th, 1978, in San Francisco, California. But his parents soon split up. And he moves with his mother to Clemens, North Carolina, when he's just five years old. Nestled in the outlying Winston-Salem area, Clemens, North Carolina, is a generic suburb of red brick houses with large yards of bright green grass that doesn't reflect the economic downturn and despair of the nearby city where one out of three lives in a high-poverty area and nearly 20% of the population is considered to live in poverty. Pazuzu has claimed he doesn't remember his father at all. His neighbor and babysitter who cared for him until he was nine says, and I quote, He was a good little kid, but he was a vampire. In his head, he was a vampire. And there's a lot of photographs of him as a child. He is a goofy-looking squirt with bright blonde hair and blue eyes, adorned in a Dracula cape with plastic vampire teeth in his mouth. He's basically a toe-headed, goofy little wannabe vampire, obsessed with horror movies that love Freddy Krueger, The Exorcist. You know, shit, that sounds exactly like me as a kid. Like, there's photographs of me in my Dracula outfit that are nearly identical to him at that age. But just to set the record straight, I have never murdered anyone. And while I may have gone through a dirty hippie stage, I definitely never thought filth bestowed magical powers. And thank goodness for that. <laughs> but it wasn't all vampire fun. At just eight years old, Little John is locked up in a mental institution for attacking his mother. But according to the neighbor and the babysitter, it was the mother who should have been locked up, not him. She claims John's mother was a drunk with a string of men coming in and out of the house and compares his outburst to that of a beaten dog that one day snaps. She says, and I quote, no one knows what that little boy went through. Oh, here we go, where we feel really sorry for the guy who ends up being a piece of garbage later. Little John, and I'm not sure why, whether it was a hygiene thing or maybe he had gas or what, but apparently John smelled like poop. And this isn't just the neighborhood kids saying this. Sympathetic neighbors and family friends, they all agree 
the kid just smelled like poop. And he ended up with the name Turd Boy. And since he was super stinky, he was viciously bullied and taunted at school. That's where everybody called him Turd Boy. Aww. And then he got into drugs and alcohol at a young age. His grades, which had never been great, grew worse and worse. He repeated the ninth grade three times in a row. Teachers learning to just ignore him. And finally, he dropped out of the school, an 18-year-old freshman. Friends from the time say he felt completely rejected by his father, and he talked of suicide nonstop, from obsessing over how Kurt Cobain shot himself to researching how Roman senators would slit their wrists in a warm bath. And he hated his stepfather, Johnny James. They were constantly fighting. It seems at one point he gave his mother an ultimatum, telling her, it's me or him. And somehow he convinced her to kick his stepfather out, even though the house was actually in his stepfather's name. And with his stepfather gone, John finds himself the man of the house. And this is when things start to get fucked up, like really fucked up. A neighbor said that they'd been in the house in 1996, and back then, it was beautiful. There were cream-colored carpets, and John's mom would insist that all shoes be taken off before anyone entered. But as John sank into a dank pit of mental health issues, indulging in every dark impulse and whim, the home became a literal house of filth and horror that would eventually be deemed unfit for human habitation. In the beginning, John's mom says she took him to counseling and therapy where he was diagnosed as agoraphobic and psychotic, but mom claims that she simply couldn't afford it. She didn't have the money. So instead of psychiatrists and therapists, she indulged him with a case of beer a day and as much rolling tobacco as he could smoke. Uh, You know, that's my kind of therapy right there. (laughs) Meanwhile, John took his love of vampires and Freddy Krueger and Jason Voorhees to another level. He wanted to become what scared people. John obsessed over Charlie Manson, and especially because he was surrounded by the evangelical Christian community, devil worship, and Satanism. Everywhere the kid looked, there were churches and pious Christians. So, rebelling, he began to read Anton LaVey and drew pentagrams and 666 everywhere. His punk rock buddy from the time, Matt Flowers, said they would go out spray painting. And while Matt would be putting up anarchy signs and black flag bars, John would be spray painting inverted crosses and 666 saying, where is your God now? Matt says he just laugh and think, well, as long as John's having fun. (laughs) Matt sounds super chill. But Levain Satanism, which is relatively peaceful 
and more of an atheist philosophy rather than actual devil worship didn't cut it for him. He wanted to be an actual demon, to be evil, and so gets into animal sacrifice, which, side note, is specifically not condoned or tolerated in either the satanic church or the satanic temple. Now, Sarah, we always hear about serial killers who torture and kill small animals as children. And here we have this guy who, as a young man, starts performing animal sacrifice. What's up with all this? What do you think is going on there with Pazuzu psychologically, in your opinion? Most true crime enthusiasts have probably heard of John McDonald's triad, even if they don't know they have. In 1963, this psychiatrist proposed a theory that three specific traits in childhood could predict whether an individual would grow up to be a violent offender or even a serial murderer in adulthood. Those three traits were cruelty to animals, fire starting, and persistent bedwetting past the age of five. This theory has since been debunked. Data shows no clinically significant pattern between individuals who commit violent crimes and the presence of all three traits. But the presence of any one of these three behaviors was associated with future aggression. And for animal cruelty in particular, research shows that 45% of school shooters had a prior history of animal abuse, as well as 21% of serial killers. Most expressed sadistic motivations for having engaged in that behavior and described low levels of empathy and guilt for having done so. It seems to me, though, that Pazuzu's motivations for animal sacrifice are not sadistic, as in antisocial personality disorder, but instead ritualistic. And this may reflect his diagnosis of schizotypal personality disorder, a hallmark of which is a symptom which is known as magical thinking. Magical thinking is the belief that specific words, thoughts, emotions, or rituals can influence the external world. Rituals become an attempt to gain a sense of control over life, and if not performed, can lead to excessive anxiety and discomfort. And before someone points it out, mainstream religious beliefs do share some similarities in common with magical thinking. But religion in general is typically not a cause for concern in the field of psychology, unless a patient holds extreme or atypical beliefs that are actively distorting reality and causing harm to self or others. As we'll see later on, the animal sacrifice is part of a rigid superstitious ritual Pazuzu has created for himself. And there's evidence to suggest that if his animal sacrifice is not completed on his self-prescribed timeline, Pazuzu will experience some significant distress, 
we'll take a deeper dive into the DSM criteria for schizotypal personality disorder later in the show, Dear Freaks. It's worth noting, too, that onset for this diagnosis is typically late teens or early adulthood, which is when these animal sacrifices first started. Fascinating. So as we said, John, or Pazuzu, as he's now asking his friends to call him, he wanted to be whatever scared people. So when 9-11 happened, he starts wearing a kafiyeh, you know, the Saudi Arabian head covering. And uh, I hope I said that right. Basically, it's like uh, this broad cloth held in place by a cord. He also starts wearing uh, Arabic style gowns and begins talking about Allah and jihad, basically doing whatever he can to get a rise out of people in this little southern suburban town. John starts getting into harder and harder drugs, grows dreadlocks, and in 2002, he legally changes his name to the demon from the movie The Exorcist, Pazuzu. In the paperwork, he claims he's doing this for religious reasons, though there's no mention of exactly these reasons or what they may be. At this point, he's telling everyone that he's actually a demon. He's orchestrating orgies, even trying his hand at mind control. Basically, he desperately wants to form a cult. He says he wants a legion, an army of followers to do his bidding. And to entice followers, he creates an atmosphere of free reign in his mother's house, a place with no rules, where you can do all the drugs you want, you can piss on the carpet, you can smash a television, smack someone across the face. No rules. Nothing mattered. As Chad Nance, editor of the now disbanded Camel City Dispatch, said, it was a mad place where you could act out your sickest and darkest fantasies. Pazuzu begins tattooing his face. The walls become covered in graffiti and flyers for punk and black metal shows. High on meth one night, Pazuzu files his teeth into fangs, making it easier to bite into small animals to drink their blood. His animal sacrifices become an actual ritual, usually falling on the new moon, when he cuts open rabbits and chomps on their still-beating hearts to the delight of his cohorts. And he does attract followers. He forms the loose beginnings of a cult. But in my opinion, you know, he was just too fucking lazy. Just look at his face tattoos. So amateur. This guy has worse tattoos than Gigi Allen had. And the name Pazuzu, uh, you know, out of all the cool demons out there, he goes for the one in the cheesy horror movie, The Exorcist. I mean, he could have been Osmodius. A full-on sex demon, a prince in hell brimming with lust, or Zabulon or Gressel, the third prince of thrones who tempts man with impurity. You know, tempting man with impurity. That's fucking cool shit. But instead, he chose Pazuzu, who is actually a personification of the southwestern wind and whose image was traditionally used in old times to protect babies. 
Okay. Okay. So he's a baby protecting wind demon. Mm, basically, yeah. But <laughs> I'll give it to him. Like any good cult leader worth his weight in babbling nonsense, he's got a little harem of pretty cute girls. First, there's his main squeeze, Amber Birch. Amber's best friend in high school says Pazuzu was the daddy she never had. That's Freudian. That's very Freudian. It's Freudian, and it's also perfect cult leadership. You know, because they say Charlie Manson, he would tell the girls while they're high on acid and he was fucking them. He'd be like, look at me. See me as your father. Imagine it is your father making love to you. Oh, okay. So her former best friend goes on to say that Amber was known as Bubbles in high school. And Bubbles was a fun-loving hippie girl. But when she met Pazuzu, she instantly changed. She shaved off her eyebrows, refused to bathe, filing her teeth to points so that she could better bite into animals. Then there was Crystal Matlock, who took so well to the call, she proudly told her friends she was part of the family. Yeah, the family. Real original name there, guys. Just laziness. You know, if I had a call, it would be something cool like, the Black Dawn of the Asmodeus tribe. Listen, not everybody can be a writer, okay? <laughs> and finally, there was Dixie Ross. These three very young and pretty cute girls became known as Pazuzu's fiancés. That's Two actually of... pretty good. Pazuzu's fiancés. Okay, yeah. Good horror movie right there. It's getting better. It's getting better. <laughs> so two of them, two of these fiancés, would end up in prison. Then, in this cult of Pazuzus, there's Nate Anderson, this guy. He was originally the boyfriend of Dixie, who ended up one of Pazuzu's fiancés, after Nate took her over there to meet him. And that's just got to be tough, man. Nate Anderson started his life as a straight-A student before he fell in with Pazuzu, and eventually, Nate ended up as a full-blown heroin junkie. Nate just has, like, this look of a nerd in his eyes. He's such a dork. Check this out. So he's, like, this crazy heroin addict, former demon worshiper, and he breaks his probation, stealing, wait for it, comic books. Yeah, he's caught stealing comic books. Then, when he goes to court... He runs out of the courthouse before sentencing and goes on the run. So he's like, literally, he's like a comic book outlaw on the run for stealing comic books. But his outlaw days don't last too long. And he soon picked up trying to, quote unquote, scam Walmart. Whatever that means. I don't know. Oof. So nerd eyes to comic book outlaw. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Quite the progression. Um, and Nate describes Pazuzu's followers as the misfits, the outcasts, crazy people who lived on the edge and people who wanted to live on the edge. And honestly, you know, that's usually my kind of people. So uh, be careful out there, fellow freaks. If it seems like you're finding yourself involved in an evil cult, get out. Evil cults, not cool. For as we'll see, this is when things get tragic. 
Just think of old Josh, Josh Welsler. Remember Josh, the hippie horse lover from the beginning who got busted for mushrooms. Well, somehow he ends up there at Pazuzu's house and it does not end well. After school special vibes here. <laughs> and how Josh ended up there, we don't know. Stacy Carter, Josh's ex and the mother of his son, said she'd never heard of Pazuzu before. Now, honestly, I can see things going south with Josh and Pazuzu easily in my mind. Josh was a hippie. He probably took off one of the black metal albums that was blasting 24 hours a day and put on a fish bootleg. Then he told everyone, smoke a joint, man. Chill out. While they were in the middle of a meth-powered blood orgy, chewing on the still-beating hearts of rabbits. (laughs) And I'm sure that was received about as well as you would expect. (laughs) So supposedly, they trapped Josh in the basement somehow. And they starved him for days, and they tortured him. Follower slash friend David Adams says, I was told there was someone in the basement, and that if anyone came out of the basement, not to let them leave. But I never heard or saw anything. Fucking red flags right there. Mm -hmm. At some point, Josh must have been allowed out of the basement. For Pazuzu's mother tells us, as she was getting ready for work one day, she heard a shot ring out. Thinking it might have been fireworks, she ventured out to investigate and witnessed her son Pazuzu pointing a gun at a bleeding Josh. But, you know, nothing to see here, so she goes back to get ready for work, and as she's leaving the house, Pazuzu calls out to her, Okay, Mom, I'm going to finish him off now. Ooh, okay. So that's right. Pazuzu's mother, Cynthia James, she witnessed that whole thing and she did nothing. And as we'll see, that wasn't the only murder that she witnessed. Well, they kept Josh's body in a pool of bleach and kitty litter to hide the stench, but it did little. And everyone who came to that house reports it stunk of death which in the end was just a new smell over all the piss, shit, and putrid mold. Eventually, they chopped off his arms and his legs and buried him in a shallow grave in the backyard by the disused swimming pool. It was Pazuzu's fiancés that ended up doing the hard, dirty work, while Crystal apparently jumped in willingly Dixie claims Amber forced her to help dig the grave, carry the body, under threat of death, telling her friend that if she didn't help, they'd slit her throat and bury her as well. And here's where we meet a strange new character, Alan Billings. It wasn't all teenagers and 20-somethings hanging out in this den of sin and mayhem. Apparently, Crystal had herself a sugar daddy of sorts with this Alan Billings, a gray-headed, recently divorced grandfather who was just looking for a good time but ended up helping dispose of body parts. Not the good time he was expecting, I'm going to assume. 
Remember, fellow freaks, if it looks like you're suddenly involved in an evil cult of murderers, get out. Not cool. Yeah, stay vigilant, everybody. Sheesh. (laughs) Afterwards, Ellen goes to the home of his daughter, Tarina Billings. Hope I'm saying that right. Distraught and exhausted, completely spun, disheveled, dirty, saying he can't get the smell of decaying human flesh off his hands. His daughter goes straight to the cops, and she tells them that this Pazuzu guy is burying people in his backyard. This is in September of 2009. Tarina is in the station 15 minutes before they're sending her on her way. So at this point, there's multiple allegations of murder and tales of corpses being buried in the backyard of this house. So the sheriff finally decides to do something. Sheriff goes to Pazuzu's house. He marches up to the front door and knocks. Pazuzu answers. They tell him, you know, all kinds of people are saying you're killing people and burying them in the backyard. Is this true? Why, no, officer, Pazuzu says, proclaiming his innocence with shock and awe at the accusations. Probably like, why, no, officer. (laughs) Anyway. (laughs) But uh, the sheriff says, hey, what if we take a look around here just to be sure? Pazuzu apologizes but says, no, he cannot give them consent to search his house. So they leave. Okay. That feels legit. And um, that's it. That's the end of the sheriff's investigation. So Pazuzu's got this party house where kids are coming to drink beer and get high. He's actively recruiting for his cult. And a random girl by the name of Sylvia LeBeau shows up. Sylvia describes herself as a good girl and literally the preacher's daughter. Pazuzu tells her, I am the gatekeeper of hell. That's a contrast right there. Um, So how do you think he said this? Do you think he said it in like a cool surfer dude voice or maybe maybe he said it in a southern drawl? <laughs> Both those would be cool. Like, right? Dude, I'm like totally the gatekeeper of hell. <laughs> but uh, from the footage I've seen of him, he spoke like a zombie and he was like brain dead. Remember, this guy did repeat the ninth grade three times before dropping out. And all the footage I saw, he spoke in like a monotone, like, I uh, am the gatekeeper of hell. Well, (laughs) Sylvia, she wasn't impressed. Not impressive. (laughs) The place was (laughs) disgusting. It stunk. But in an attempt to woo her, the wannabe cult showed her pornographic home movies they made. And this made her physically sick and they kept bragging about how pazuzu had shot a hippie and buried him in the backyard crystal in particular was very proud of how she'd been involved in this murder and helped in the dismemberment and burial sylvia found all this even less impressive and deeply disturbing as well wow this is like a terrible strategy to make friends like i just just want to say that it doesn't work by the way it, yeah we tried it <laughs> it didn't work for them no and um and later when relating this strange story to a friend uh sylvia discovers there may be some truth to that story 
especially when Sylvia's friend introduces her to the mother of Josh's child, our Stacy Carter. Oh, Stacy is obviously distraught and they concoct a plan. Sylvia goes back to the house and in a real act of bravery, because seriously, I don't know if I would have done this, you know, like, let's go to the murderer's house. And she uses her phone to record them. And Stark's asking the followers of his little cult, is it true that Pazuzu is killing people? And remember, they love to brag about it. And Nate, our heroin junkie, comic book bandit, he says, of course it's true. They're buried in the backyard. As if it was no big deal at all. And simply common knowledge. Well, that's a bold strategy for Sylvia. I gotta admire that a little bit. And um, (laughs) Sylvia goes to the police and she tells them everything she knows. And of course, they look at her like she's crazy. They send her off and they do a whole bunch more nothing. But Stacy, Josh's ex and the mother of his child, remember, armed with this information, she goes back to the police and she tells them the story, plays them the tape. And coincidentally, on the same exact day, February 29th, 2010, Tarina Williams, the daughter of Crystal Sugar Daddy, she calls a Crime Stoppers tip line again to report the story her father told her. So now you're thinking this is when the cops finally gear up and take some action. How many tips and complaints do they need, right? And you would, unfortunately, be absolutely 100% dead wrong. The cops do absolutely nothing. Now rumors start circulating that Pazuzu has not only shot and buried another man, but that he's also murdered and eaten two sex workers, as well as several homeless people. He's quite literally becoming an urban legend in this little town. Where these rumors about the sex workers came from and whether there's any truth to them, we don't know. But they were widely talked about both then by his friends and associates and later, much later, unfortunately, by the news media. But Pazuzu's old punk rock friend, Matt Flowers, the super chill guy that he used to graffiti with back in those innocent days, Matt had had enough. He'd left North Carolina to join the military and serve in Iraq with airborne special services. And he was back in town, a war veteran now, and did not like what he saw and what he was hearing. All these stories, many of them coming right from Pazuzu himself, are especially disturbing because Matt was good friends with Dixie, one of Pazuzu's fiancés whom you may remember was forced under threat of death to help bury Josh Wetzler. And it's the thought of dear Dixie, whom he remembered as a sweet and pretty girl that makes Matt Flowers go to the Fulton County Sheriff's office and leave an anonymous yet very, very detailed report. Matt details everything he's heard, including exactly where the bodies are buried. And finally, Finally, after years of allegations, the sheriffs go to Pazuzu Oligard's house in February 2010 with a search warrant 
decked out in their SWAT team garb and tactical gear. They search and find nothing. Absolutely nothing. They say there's no indication of a crime and seal the search warrant, thereby cutting off the press from finding any clues that would be revealed there, such as the many tips and all the allegations and rumors. And, you know, after thinking about it, maybe ancient Sumerian demons were helping this guy. It's the only thing I can think of to explain the complete lack of competence with the Forsyth County Sheriff's Department. Matt Flowers had given them detailed information on exactly where the bodies were buried. Insane. In fucking sane. Yeah, seriously. They say after this, things just got crazier in Pazuzu's mom's house. In May of 2010, Pazuzu is arrested for choking his mother, resulting in that iconic dreadlocked mugshot with the tribal tattoos across the bridge of his nose that you see on the internet so much if you look up this case. Amber is also arrested for hitting and choking Pazuzu's mom. And at one point, Amber is even arrested for hitting Pazuzu himself. Oh, yeah. well, so much for uh, anarchy and anything goes, I guess. Truly. And the point is, the cops are at the house all the time, but nothing ever happens. And all of this leads us to the sad and tragic death of Joseph Chandler. Made all the more sad and tragic as it never would have happened if the cops had just done their job to begin with. Let's talk about this Joseph fella. He was 30 years old, legally blind. He's an African-American man who had the unfortunate fate of running into Pazuzu and his friend Nicholas Rizzi as Joseph walked to the corner store one night. The threesome took off together to Rowan River, and what happened next is unknown, but the long and short of it is Joseph was found dead of gunshot wounds on a boat ramp in Donaha Park on June 8th, 2010. Apparently, there was evidence linking Pazuzu and Nicholas to the crime, and they're gathered up and questioned. They claim it was a target practice accident. They were just out, innocently target practicing in the middle of a night with a stranger that they picked up. Nothing to see here. Makes complete sense. Oh, yeah. I'm always out target practicing with people I've never met before in strange places. Constantly. <laughs> well, a psych evaluation is made of Pazuzu. And this is later accidentally made public by a Forsyth County clerk. And so if you're so inclined, you can find it with a simple Google search. It notes, among other things, how Pazuzu stunk of human excrement. He can't change turd boy. And he claims to have not bathed in over a year and to have not brushed his teeth in years, saying he felt such actions, quote, stripped the body of its defenses in warding off infection and illness, unquote. Now, Sarah, we're going to get back to these psychological questions. Is it true 
that bathing and brushing your teeth will strip your body of its defenses and warding off infection and illness? You're really going to ask me this, aren't you? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) All right. Well, quite the opposite, which hopefully all the folks at home know. Uh, Personal hygiene helps protect us against certain diseases. And it's worth noting, I'm not a medical doctor, but knowledge about personal hygiene is an important part of both my professional roles. We talked about the psychological implications of bad hygiene already. But as you might recall, I'm also a tattoo artist. And within the tattoo industry, personal cleanliness and a sterile work environment are essential for prevention of infection and bloodborne illnesses. Imagine the human immune system can actually function better if we're not being bombarded by preventable infections caused by poor hygiene. Like, why do you think so many restaurants and stores have that wash your hands sign in the public restroom? Skin diseases, tooth decay, parasitic fungal infections, disorders of the gastrointestinal tract, all that shit comes from lack of bathing and wearing dirty clothes. Not to mention, you're at risk for contracting living parasites like lice, pinworms, scabies. Maybe the forces of evil are protecting Pazuzu after all, though, because I was expecting to see more of these types of concerns appearing on his official medical and psychological evaluation, but they really don't. Must have been working. You know, (laughs) in his report, he says he practices a Sumerian religion that only he and his wife, Amber, are adherents to, and that he learned the rites and beliefs of this religion while going through a five-year shamanistic journey. And just please take notes, he never mentions Satanism in any form here. So, hey, news media, if you're listening, please stop calling this guy a Satanist, okay? Because, you know, it goes without saying that when all this nonsense finally broke all over the news, the Church of Satan obviously condemned it all yeah no actual satanism here just a lot of weird other stuff (laughs) (laughs) and pazuzu explains in the psych evaluation how every month on what he calls the black moon or the new moon that he has to perform a rite involving the sacrifice of a small animal and pazuzu is very concerned Because the new moon is coming up, and he doesn't know what's going to happen if he's not able to perform his rite. He repeatedly requests that he be released to do this ritual, and he promises he's going to come right back to jail when he's done. Yeah. And his mother, she also shows up asking for him to be released, saying, if he can't perform an animal sacrifice on the black moon, he may kill himself What a good mommy. She's so there for her son. You know, only the most loving of mothers come to the jailhouse to beg for their son's release so they can perform an animal sacrifice on the black moon. (laughs) I can't say my mom would do that for me. I really can't. (laughs) I'm not going to even put my mother in this situation. (laughs) Now we get to the actual diagnosis. And maybe Sarah can chime in here with her professional understanding of what it all says. Okay, so 
I'm going to talk to my other psych nerds out there here for a second. This diagnosis was made using the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Health, or DSM-4TR, criteria. And at the time, which was 2010, this was the most recent installment of that manual. Psychology professionals at that time are still using that five-axis system to describe patient presentation. Each of the five axes provides different information about a patient's overall condition. In order, these axes are axis one, mental health and substance abuse, axis two, personality disorders, axis three, general medical condition, four, psychosocial and environmental problems, and axis five is the global assessment of functioning score. The leaked version of Pazuzu's psych evaluation is missing information about axis 4 and axis 5, but we've already established significant information about axis 4, like Pazuzu's support system, his housing, his social circle, and we have a general idea of how impaired Pazuzu's daily functioning was. In his official psych evaluation, he's given the following AXIS-1 diagnoses. The first listed is panic disorder with agoraphobia. Classified as an anxiety disorder, a person with panic disorder experiences recurrent panic attacks. Those include symptoms such as trembling, shaking, sweating, dizziness, and heart palpitations. The presence of agoraphobia in this diagnosis indicates that the panic is triggered by fears about being outside of the home, being in a crowded environment, or traveling. The feared situations are usually avoided. Pazuzu's also diagnosed with alcohol dependence on Axis 1. You can probably guess what this one means. Alcohol dependence is a maladaptive pattern of heavy and chronic drinking. It's characterized by physical reliance on alcohol in order to function normally. Our third diagnosis on Axis 1 is status post-possible episode of alcohol withdrawal. Alcohol withdrawal is the physical syndrome that results with cessation of heavy and prolonged alcohol use. And this can literally kill you. When someone with alcohol dependence stops drinking, common symptoms include sweating, elevated pulse, hand tremors, insomnia, vomiting, hallucinations, anxiety, and sometimes even seizures. Status post-possible episode of alcohol withdrawal seems to imply that this assessment was conducted after Pazuzu detoxed from alcohol, and hopefully this happened in a medically supervised setting. Let's talk about his AXIS-2 diagnosis. And remember, AXIS-2 is personality disorders. A personality disorder is classified separately from a mental health disorder in the DSM-4TR. A personality disorder 
is the condition in which the patient's thoughts, perceptions, feelings, and social abilities differ significantly from those of the average person. Pazuzu was diagnosed with schizotypal personality disorder, which is defined by pervasive patterns of odd or strange behavior, uh, appearance, and thinking. These cognitive and behavioral disturbances are not severe enough to warrant a schizophrenia diagnosis. In large part, that is due to the absence of psychotic episodes. Yes, there are no hallucinations involved in the presentation of schizotypal personality disorder, only bizarre fantasies. Patients exhibit perceptional distortions and unusual behavior beginning by early adulthood. In order to be diagnosed, five or more of the following criteria must be present. Ideas of reference. Magical thinking that influences behavior, like the need to make a sacrifice during the black moon. Unusual perceptual experiences. Odd thinking and speech. Suspiciousness or paranoid ideation inappropriate or constricted affect. Remember, Matthew mentioned Pazuzu's speech patterns here earlier on. Behavior or appearance that is odd, eccentric, or peculiar. Maybe some elaborate face tattoos. Lack of close friends or lack of confidants. Excessive social anxiety associated with paranoid fears. Maybe also including of fear of leaving the house. And that brings us to axis three, which is our health-related diagnoses. Pazuzu has alcoholic hepatitis, which is the inflammation of the liver from drinking too much. He's got abnormal cholesterol. What's the cholesterol level like from drinking animal blood and eating rabbit hearts again? He's got macrocytosis, which means that his red blood cells are larger than usual. Macrocytosis can be indicative of liver disease, alcoholism, or hypothyroidism. And his fourth medical diagnosis is possible subclinical hypothyroidism. That's an underactive thyroid gland. Symptoms are very subtle in early stages, but over time, Subclinical hypothyroidism can lead to high cholesterol and heart problems, as well as cause or exacerbate depression and pre-existing memory issues. So uh, our buddy here, he's deemed competent to stand trial. He pleads guilty to accessory after the fact of involuntary manslaughter. And what does our lovable little turd boy demon get? Wait for it. He gets a suspended sentence and five years probation. Yes, Pazuzu walks out a free man. Very par for the course at this point. It's the, it must, it, maybe the Pazuzu name is good. I don't okay. know. He, I don't understand how this is happening. Those demons have really got his back. <laughs> Apparently. <laughs> his buddy Nicholas Rizzi ends up with a 16-month term for involuntary manslaughter. But don't worry, that'll include the time already served 
So he'll be out soon enough. Wonderful. I yeah, it's it's insane that this poor guy was murdered like this, and they just let these guys walk. And check this out: on November eighth, two thousand eleven. Pazuzu's mom, Cynthia James, goes to the police and she tells Detective Hammonds that in early 2010, she'd heard a gunshot and gone out to see one of Pazuzu's fiancés, Amber, with a smoking rifle pointed at some guy slumped over on the couch. Now, remember these dates because this is not Josh Wetzler. She'd seen Josh Wetzler murdered by her son in 2009. This was somebody else, another murder in the house, and then eyewitness to it. And what do you think, dear listeners, this Detective Hammonds does with this information of an eyewitness murder? Well, exactly what you'd expect. Absolutely nothing. He did nothing. And the years, they just keep ticking by. All was good and jolly in Clemens, North Kalalaki. Only it wasn't. It's now 2014, and Matt Flowers, the old-school punk rock war veteran, he isn't going to take this bullshit anymore. He's done with all the Pazuzu crap going on, especially when Pazuzu tries to talk him into killing his mom's new boyfriend. So he marches into the Forsyth Sheriff's Department and tells them, point blank, right to their faces, if you don't go search this guy's house and dig up his backyard, I'm going to fucking kill him. I'm going to go over there, and I'm going to blow his fucking brains out and come right back here and turn myself in and say, well, I told you I was going to do it. So he's forceful and he's angry. He's a special forces veteran and a crazy, drunk punk rocker with an attitude, and the sheriffs actually take him at his word. For once, they finally take one of these witnesses seriously. So on October 5th, 2014, over five years since the first tip came in, in September 24th, 2009, detectives go back to Pazuzu Algarad's house with a search warrant. All right. There's YouTube footage of this raid, and I strongly suggest, my fellow freaks, that you watch it just to get an idea of how absolutely disgusting this house was. But in the meantime, I'll give you some details. So first off, it's October, so there's a jack-o'-lantern right there on the front steps as soon as everything begins, just setting the scene. And as the cops approach the front door, there's cardboard Halloween decorations. The whole thing is just like something out of a Rob Zombie horror movie. On the door, it says, evil will triumph. And there's this goofy ass handwritten screed that reads, no gang members allowed. Anyone who dresses the same, has the same badge, and calls themselves the authority of a land they did not create they only seized through terrorism, has no permission to enter this land unless you are a native, since this is their land, since this is the First Amendment of your fake laws, for we see you are guilty until proven innocent. If you can make laws 
So can we. No one there was doing meth. I can tell you. <laughs> All right. Definitely not. Like, that's a that's a very normal letter. <laughs> well, this is like something to me that you would see your typical edge lord teenager write and hang up on their bedroom door to freak out their parents. Only at this point, Pazuzu's getting on into his 30s. He's a full-grown man, not a little kid. So the cops ignore the sign. No, it's a very <laughs> scary sign. And they enter anyway. And they're very shocked by the unimaginable level of filth and that god-awful stench. Immediately, they start saying that this house is not fit for human habitation. There's no drains in the kitchen sink. The water just dumps out. There's molds everywhere. Mounds of garbage covering every inch of the floor. There's animal feces, human feces. Dirty mattresses and broken box springs and an absolutely huge swastika painted right there on the wall. When you see a huge swastika, you can always tell what level of asshole you're dealing with. And there's an altar room. And that room is so rancid, so foul that the police can't stomach it. And they have to call the fire department to come in in hazmat suits with oxygen tanks, and they knock the windows out. It, they search the backyard, and the body of Josh Wetzler, which has been rumored to be buried there for five years, they quickly discover it. It's sitting right there in a very shallow grave, exactly where Matt Flowers had originally told them it would be. And they also find, surprise, surprise, another body. And the other body could barely be characterized as being buried in a shallow grave. It was described as simply being a mound of flesh, bones, and clothing. And this was the body of Tommy Dean Welch. He's just an average working class Joe. Last seen walking down the street from his mother's house. And his mother lived a few blocks away. Apparently this guy just randomly ran into Pazuzu and Amber walking down the street. Maybe they offered him a beer or something. You know, who knows? Would you like beer? Watch <laughs> the football with us. So this guy, this is the guy that Pazuzu's mother witnessed being murdered. And she actually reported this to the police. They could have solved this crime back then. This guy was reported missing last seen literally walking by a house where the owner of the house reported a murder. It boggles the mind. But after all this comes out, Chief Deputy Bradley Stanley made a heartfelt and I believe very telling statement. A statement that really reflects the level of competence that we're dealing with here. Okay, ready for this? He said, it's not normal practice to find deceased people in shallow graves in backyards of neighborhoods. Oh, really, Chief Deputy? Thank you so much for clearing that up for us. Because from the way your department has handled this case for the last five years, I was beginning to think it was completely normal. I mean, since you knew about these bodies all this time and did nothing, I know you're busy busting hippies for mushroom, important crimes, and I can see how murder would just have to take a backseat. You know, fuck. 
That guy sounds as dumb as fucking Pazuzu. Let me tell you, I wonder if he had to take the ninth grade three times as well. It just, it makes my blood boil. Maybe this whole town needs to go back to high school. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> but um, if we thought the police incompetence was over now, we're in for a surprise because it just keeps on going. So Pazuzu is transferred to safekeeping, but the order is sealed by the court, just like, like both the search warrants were. So the press can't find out why he was transferred to this safekeeping. What's going on with him? So in this town, there's people either sealing up the, all the documents to keep their secrets or they're accidentally releasing psych reports and breaking their HIPAA commitments. Very counterintuitive. I don't know <laughs> what the hell's going on with this. And Pazuzu is transferred from Forsyth County Detention Center to Central Prison. And why was he transferred? Well, apparently he was trying to commit suicide constantly. They couldn't seem to stop him. So instead of, I don't know, like hospitalizing him or somehow finding some kind of special housing, they just transfer him to central prison where it becomes somebody else's problem. And what do you think happened? If you guess suicide, you're our lucky winner. Yes, Pazuzu was found dead in his prison cell on October 28th, 2015 in a pool of his own blood. You notice how much of this story takes place in October? It kind of makes it so much spookier somehow. It, it really does. And now let's get really spooky and creepy. How do you think this wannabe demon managed to kill himself, fellow freaks? This guy in a tiny cell on suicide watch, what's he able to do? Well, Remember those teeth that he sharpened? He somehow managed to use them to gnaw into his own arms, and he chomped open his brachial artery. So fucking hardcore. You know, I hate this filthy asshole. He, like, destroyed so many lives, but I got to give it to him, you know. Goddamn, that is one hardcore way to go. Biting into your own arm with your fangs that you made. Oh, yeah, that's that's brutal and like kind of metal as hell. It's just it, a little it's bit metal AF, dude, for sure. <laughs> and um, ooh, on uh, on March 9th, 2017, our Amber Birch pled guilty to murder and she was sentenced to 30 years in prison. The one skinny, pretty, blonde, hippie girl that had been known as Bubbles to her friends in high school was now completely unrecognizable. She was absolutely huge. Her hair had gone dark and she looked easily twice her 30 some years. And on June 5th, 2017, Crystal Matlock pled guilty to one count of second degree murder and was sentenced to just 38 months with 242 days already served. She, too, was unrecognizable, having grown incredibly large and aged beyond her years, just like her friend Amber had. Crystal was released from prison a little over a year later, but in less than a year out, Crystal was back in court again for multiple drug charges, 
breaking and entering and possession of a firearm. Yeah, she'd basically gone on a meth-fueled crime spree. Surprise! As for Pazuzu's mother, Cynthia Janes, she says she just blocks out the bad things and claims John had some mental issues, but he was not a bad guy. He wasn't a boogeyman. I just want to have good memories of my son. Ugh, you know, he was quite literally the boogeyman of Clemens, North Carolina. He was a sadist and a murderer who loved to torture both humans and defenseless animals. Because of him, a young child was left fatherless. He left a wake of destroyed human lives behind him. And if this doesn't define bad, I don't know what the hell does. Yeah, man, mom is like the master of cognitive dissonance right here. <laughs> yeah. Um, and just I don't understand how his mother was never indicted or charged with a crime. She was literally a witness and an accessory to not one, but two murders. And that was right there in her own home. It's crazy. Yeah. And her new house where she lives, it's adorned with photos of Pazuzu. And not like just the innocent photos of him as a little kid and a baby, but pictures of him with his crude facial tattoos in his jihadist turban. Pictures of him shirtless, bald, and smoking, looking decidedly evil. There's even the mugshot from the night he was arrested for strangling her. She's just really lucky she never developed a taste for psilocybin mushrooms, for that will not be tolerated in Forsyth County. Nope, nope, way over the line. <laughs> and um, just, wow. I mean, so many shattered lives there and so much devastation. But in this ruin, there are heroes. Certainly Matt Flowers. Without his conviction, who knows what this, how this would have ended. Um, Sylvia LeBeau was so brave to have gone back to that house and to actually have taped them on her phone all for Stacy Carter. And, you know, she said she did it after seeing Josh and Stacy's son. Seeing that little boy, she said the thought just ran through her. His father is buried in that guy's backyard. It made her sick, and she knew she had to do something about it. And we also can't forget Tarina Billings, who went to the police over and over there's a lot of heroes in this story a lot of brave people and unfortunately in this case the police were not one of them and many of these brave people's voices went unheard and i'm sorry about the bummer ending but i'm going to give you a positive image my fellow freaks i want you to think of matt flowers and all his punk rock glory tattoos stretching over his arms and chest up his neck and onto his face, wearing his custom leather jacket covered in spikes and his Doc Martens, driving a hearse with a hot rod flames painted across the hood, headed to college classes where he's studying criminal justice in the hopes of getting his PI license. And you go, brother. You go. Hell yeah, man. <laughs> Love and, that guy. Uh, right? That's, that's a good image. 
it, it's in the in the documentary they show him at the end in his hearse he's got his hearse with his custom flames and he's taking off taking his class have to go to get his pi license and you know he would arguably make a better cop than anybody in this whole town so, yeah, he couldn't make a worse one no you go dude <laughs> and um i think that's the perfect image on which to close the show thank you so much for listening fellow freaks and be sure to tune in next week as well for more tales of murder and mayhem here on murder coaster and hey we want to hear from you have a case you think we should cover did we get something wrong or do you just want to say hi shoot us an email at murdercoasterpodcast at gmail.com that's murdercoasterpodcast at gmail.com catch you on the flip side